Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley. I'm Mick Garrison. This is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. But I'm predicting it's not going to be so fun size today because this is our 2022 year-end AMA, closing out a pretty spectacular year for the genre. And asking your questions of me is our redoubtable producer, Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you? I'm doing very well, Mick. It's the holiday season. I love this time of year, so I'm great. <laughs> okay, it's the most wonderful time of the year, they say. That's true for some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, you're right. We have we have a full show, and and oh my gosh, we have so many more questions too. That uh, I guess we can officially say we will get to in 2023 because Mick, we have some news about the show. Well, yes, we have re-upped with our friends at Dread at the Dread Podcast Network. So we will be back for 2023 after a brief timeout, but very brief. Yes, uh, we will be back for season seven of Postmortem with Mick Harris. Holy uh, shit. Seven. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> where's where's the Tylenol? Uh, yeah. So, so well, yeah. we've been doing this for six years and then. That's not counting the postmortem TV show, which which was the well, precedent setter for this podcast. True, but I was not a part of that. So. <laughs> That's true. There were no AMAs then. There were no AMAs then, but there are now. So shall we dive into a uh, robust holiday gift bag? You bet. An even deeper dive than usual. <laughs> All right. Richard Humphreys wants to know. What was the first home video release you got under a Christmas tree? You know, home video releases started back in the late 70s. Um, the Betamax came out first and in 76, I think. And I was working at Star Wars and mainly the Christmas gift was to myself. I bought myself a <laughs> Betamax player. And uh, this was 1977 or 78. And... Uh, I think it was close to a thousand dollars. I had saved my pennies, which wow. is what I was paid was pennies. Yeah. But uh, you pay for being an early adopter. But I was such a movie fan and such a video fanatic, and being able to record movies from the Z channel onto my own home device and watch it anytime I wanted to was a breakthrough. So that was my first real seasonal gift even though it was to myself but you the remember the first betamax movie you purchased for it uh yes uh it was well psycho was the second one i bought wow. the first one i bought was a boris karloff movie um called bedlam from mm. rko and uh, it was pretty great and it was a huge bargain at 1995 psycho i think cost me 59.95 the first one i bought wow because oh. they were priced for rental sure. the right. stores oh. the stores bought them and then you rented it from the stores so they were it was never a purchase plan that was made available by the studios they were priced to like 70 80 90 dollars so that they could make a profit and then the video stores would turn a profit over those. I, uh, I, I, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I obviously came along with the VHS boom, uh, but I don't remember getting a lot of VHS movies for Christmas per se, because uh, someone in my household may or may not have uh, 
you know, rented movies and then recorded them onto another VHS. <laughs> okay, piracy police. Here we go. Hollywood. Uh, woo, MPAA, woo, woo. come on. We're going to come after someone for 40 years ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we had lots of, uh, you know, VHS movies with uh, two or three movies on, you know, a single VHS tape, uh, yeah. which was great for me because, you know, I would just plug it in and watch three movies in a row, you know, yeah, at SP <laughs> speed, which sucked. But, yeah, but I, I do distinctly remember one year getting because it was significant because we didn't get a lot of, you know, traditional home video uh, VHS tapes. But I do remember getting the Star Wars trilogy on uh, VHS uh, yeah. in, a big, in a big box set. Uh, so I would say that is probably the one that I have the first distinctive memory of owning. Well, that's a pretty notable one. And And back in those days, the VHS days, people didn't buy in gift movies as much because they weren't made for for purchase price they were very special events so it really was in the years of dvd that people started giving gifting them to one another they were much more practical that way so now if you're a believer in physical media as we are yes. um, it's always a, a real treat to get a Blu-ray or an, uh, a 4K or something of a favorite movie or something obscure we've never seen. So it's become much more of a gift-giving format than the VHS, clunky old VHS was. And I will say my uh, uh, family is now a big adopter to, to DVDs and Blu-rays. And there's this massive collection, my own and, and my parents. Uh, so, so definitely when that era started, uh, when they became more affordable, um, you know, and, and they became a little less easier to fit into a bookshelf. Um, yeah. We kind of moved into that space. So there you go. A happy ending to uh, movie, <laughs> movie piracy. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So in short, Bedlam and Psycho were the first v, uh, first Betamax tapes I ever got. That's great. All right. A&W wants to know, are you open to directing Christmas horror? <laughs> um well if it's great yeah right yeah uh, if it, it it would be hard to be really special i mean people have done it uh, violent night did it and uh you know black christmas was wonderful and and there have been i mean my very favorite of all is rare exports a christmas tale mm -hmm. uh, so people have brought imagination and intelligence and creativity into the field but most of them don't reach those high marks the high yeah. water mark that those do right so but if someone were to present me with the opportunity to do a really great transgressive christmas movie i i'd be up for it that's that's i like to hear that i mean that that is the the answer really to just about anything it has to be that's you right to, you have to believe it's great right yeah do you want to do a good alligator movie well if it's a great alligator movie it can be yeah. done yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. On sales and Lewis Teague proved that. So pick an animal, pick a topic, you know, if it's good, sure. Yeah. Well, I, I keep, I keep trying to do it. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a couple shorts that were set at Christmas, uh, most notably the one that actually is available online to the public midnight clear, uh, right. which is about a family on a, a very nerve wracking Christmas Eve. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so absolutely. Yes. Sign me up. Yeah, well, <laughs> Joe Russo is Father Christmas after all. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, Father Horror Christmas. Um, all right. Stuart asks, Nick and Joe, what did you accomplish in 2022 that you're most proud of? 
interesting. I mean, personal accomplishments are one thing, professional accomplishments are another, but probably the one that stands out the most is I was able to get Fathom Events to redo the thing because they screwed it up so badly. Mm -hmm. The only time I've ever unconsciously started a viral campaign <laughs> against the shoddy treatment of the 40th anniversary of John Carpenter's yeah. The Thing. And they they showed basically a home DVR version that cut off the sides of the movie. It was not shown in widescreen. It was skipping because they tried to show it in 30 frames per second when it was a 24 frames per second issue. And it was barely high definition. And you would never broadcast something like that onto the big screen. And because of my bitching, it actually got them to re-show it in most theaters in 4K, not in all of them. Yeah, no, that was that was uh, that was a big moment for for you and for postmortem this year. We got uh, we got a lot of attention for that, and, uh, and and rightfully so. You know, I hope hopefully moving forward, Fathom will be a little bit more careful about uh, the quality controls. I thing. hope so, but I have my doubts. I I do too, sadly. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, I, look, I, I'm I'm very lucky and, and grateful that I had another movie go into production this year, but. Uh, um, one of the things that's, you know, two of the things that stood out to me most, um, I think we're just like markers more of my career where they are. Uh, one is, um, I have my first ever meeting on Tuesday with Amblin. Uh, oh, nice. I'm yeah. very excited about, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg is my favorite director and, uh, you know, I think to be able to get into those doors, you have to have done at least a couple things of some note uh yeah, well there's so, nothing but love here for for uncle steve as i like that's to call right it. that's yeah. right uh so i'm very excited about that and then the other thing was uh you know for the first time that i can really think of um you know i found a really great short film from a really exciting young filmmaker and uh you know i i basically sent it to couple friends that work for you know some a-list production companies and i was able to set it up with them uh which i think you know being able to take just an idea even just a short film and being able to take it and and lay it off somewhere uh with with a-list level auspices behind it um you know that's not easy that that that's that takes a lot of trust and a lot of networking and a lot of you know goodwill um, yeah, well, I'm proud of you, young man. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So I think those yeah. those two stand out as being uh, uh, interesting benchmarks of where my career is currently. Uh, That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations and good luck. Yes. Yeah, I've got a couple of projects I've been working on for, for years that look like they got kickstarted this year. So um, despite all of the bad parts of 2022, the highlights uh, hopefully will overpower them for everyone as they have for us. Yeah, I think that too. I think, I think this was definitely a transitional year for me because I had a lot of stuff that, that had been set up over the last few years going to the production in the last two years. And so this is kind of like the, you know, building the next couple of years, hopefully. So we'll see what yeah, happens. Keep the train running up the hill and soon it will start gliding down. No, that's not true. <laughs> it never becomes the easy ride down the hill. No, no, I, I've, I've learned that it, it really doesn't get easier. Uh, <laughs> so it's just, just getting up and doing it again, you know? Yeah. Well, anything worth doing is worth working hard for. That's right. All right. Ian wants to know, 
Mick and Joe, what was your favorite movie, horror and non-horror of 2022? That's a tough one. Um, you know, the non-horror, it's really hard to say. Well, I could um, tell you what mine is. What's yours? Everything, everywhere, oh, okay, all at once. <laughs> all right, we're in the same boat on this one because... <laughs> I absolutely love that one. That's borderline horror, but not really. Well, it's, it's, it's science fantastical. fiction. It's science yeah. fiction. It's genre for sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that would be my favorite mainstream or non-horror movie. Uh, and my favorite horror movie is Pearl. Ah, uh, yes. I loved Pearl too. Uh, it's really, it's really terrific. Um, I, you know, I thought that uh, X was fun, but I really thought that that was really just the warm up to Pearl, you know? Oh, it definitely was, it, you know, X the wonderful thing about X was it more than any other chainsaw reboot or remake is a reboot of Texas chainsaw in the first yeah. half. It mm -hmm. conveys Toby Hooper's sensibilities better than any other attempt to do a Texas chainsaw movie. And then it goes its own direction. Yep. Yep. And, and Pearl really was wizard of Oz as a horror movie. Uh, yeah, It's like Douglas Sirk directed uh, Pearl. You know, it's this technicolor looking, uh, luscious, romantically styled, and the music is big, and it's like a 1950s romance, but yeah. it goes dark in a hurry. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, I'm really excited to see what he does with his third installment set in the 80s. I think it'll be, um, it'll be, it'll be, that'll be a really special trilogy when it's all said and done. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think for me, my favorite horror movie of the year, you know, last year I got a preview of one that came out this year at Beyond Fest, uh, which was The Black Phone. And I still really, really love The Black Phone, but I feel like that's cheating because I can't really have the same favorite horror movie two years in a row. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> right. That is cheating, Joe. But I will say that one of the other Beyond Fest screenings that just rocked me and, uh, you know, also made me feel professional envy was uh was was prey i i loved prey up and down um you know i i've been a predator fan my whole life and uh you know the first movie was the first movie i can remember really truly scaring me even though it's an action movie um and i'm just a sucker for that monster man i love the predators <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, that I think I think I'll I think I'll say Prey is officially my favorite horror movie in twenty. Okay, we got two one-word P movies there. That's Prey right. and Pearl. Yeah, <laughs> one-syllable P movies. Well, let's talk about some other horror movies we like because Daniel wants to know what are some of our twenty twenty-two horror movie highlights. Okay, it was a really big year for. Oh horror. my gosh, yes, and, I know. It's really and hard. a very very diverse year. But I did jot some down because I did take a look at your question. Mm. Um, and just in no particular order, I thought Fresh was terrific. Yes. I thought Barbarian was terrific. Yes. We've already talked about Pearl and by extension X. Um, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies has the best twist of any movie this year. So fun. Really, really smart and clever. Hatching, I thought, was terrific. And uh, Benson and Moorhead, Something in the Dirt. Mm. Love that. Really great yeah. stuff. Really the clever, menu. clever, fun way in. Yeah, the menu shows that a studio can do a mainstream horror movie really well. Yeah. Um, my, you know, it, ironically, most of these directors, all of them so far, have been on the show. Yeah, yeah. Movies and also Watcher, 
which I thought was really, really good. Yes, I was just going to bring that up. If you hadn't hadn't mentioned Watcho, I thought it was really terrific. And, you know, obviously we've had him on the show too. I'm, I'm a big proponent of Smile. I'm very proud of my friend Parker Finn. I think he did it. Yeah. I mean, it's the biggest horror movie of the year. Like that's, yeah. that's an incredible story. Um, so, and I, I will admit, uh, he made me jump out of my chair more than once. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, truth. Toby called those seat lifters. There you go. There was, there was a couple of seat lifters in that one. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, what, just like one of the best years in horror, I think I can remember for a while. Um, so and yeah. we've been lucky enough to tap the talent behind those to get them to, to tell us about their movies on, on this show. And that's kind of the whole point of this is to let people who love the genre as much as we do understand the influences and the creative process and how everybody works differently. And, and this was a, a great platform for that information to come out. Exactly. Well, let's talk about one of the other big movies of 2022 uh let's talk about hocus pocus 2 the biggest streaming movie ever i think i heard of it yeah <laughs> uh dr strange job writes the original hocus pocus has become a mainstay for halloween family viewing but the sequel provoked the ire of religious extremists in 2022 america what do you make of this cultural shift well i think Maybe we're on the rebound from a really horrific social cultural shift that's been taking place where the the rabid conservatives um, have come out of the from under their rocks um, because it was allowed for four years and encouraged by a raving lunatic. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully that, you know, I don't know that that really had much to do with that religious backlash to Hocus Pocus 2. You know, uh, evangelical Christians have for a long time had a problem with stories about witchcraft. Uh, I understand that. Um, but we're talking about imagination and entertainment and storytelling. And, you know, it's, it, it just kind of baffles me. Now, I wasn't involved in the making of Hocus Pocus 2 in any way. But um, to me, it seems completely inoffensive and family film fair for everyone. Uh, and that kind of protest just seems completely out of line with what we're talking about. Let's, let's talk about real world issues rather than uh, a Disney movie that has three witches who come back after 30 years. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's just a smoke screen, right? It's just a smoke screen. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're just distracting their, you know, their base with, with kind of false controversies to, to mask the real issues. Uh, Absolutely. To get them to come out on their side um, when their side really is not necessarily their side. I mean, do you think, though, because it is interesting that the first one kind of went relatively unnoticed by them, but I, that's probably just a, a because it was flew under the radar at the box office anyway the first time around, right? I well, mean, there, was a, there was a little bit of reaction from the evangelical community, but they didn't have the voice then that they have now. Yeah, social media um, and uh, conservative, conservative news has given, given them a platform. And the idea that Hocus Pocus has become such an iconic success and Hocus right. Pocus 2 being people knew what was coming before it was there. These people were already lining up their shotguns before they'd even seen the movie right. because it was a sequel to something 
that had been profoundly effective across a very wide audience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's literally what it is. Um, well, Anitra asks the age old question, what exactly does a producer do and how can they accomplish becoming one? Okay. Um, you know, it, it is an evergreen question. Yes, it is. <laughs> and it, it is because it is such an ethereal uh, job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really difficult to just say, well, a producer does this, this, and this. Now, in my personal experience as a producer, for example, on Masters of Horror, my job was to come up with the idea, attach the talent, you know, know exactly where you're going, what the overall support is going to be. And I'm not a line producer. I don't deal with money. Uh, I don't deal with getting rights and legalism and all that stuff. But it's to create a creative platform for the best filmmakers around and choosing scripts, that sort of thing. So I was a creative producer. A lot of producers in television, the executive producer is more important. In film, right. the producer is more important. Because they but, just wanted to confuse everyone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't know how it ended up that way. But showrunners or creators on TV series are usually executive producers. Yep. Whereas the, the big guns uh, in features, the Jason Blums and the like, are producers. Yes. Um, but a producer can be someone who finds money or puts money into it. He can get credit for a producer. Um, often managers get producing credit because they represent clients who uh, the buyers want desperately to have. And they said, well, okay, you've got him, but I'm his manager. So I get a producing credit as well. I, 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 that's the one that rubs, that's the one that chafes my uh, rhubarb the wrong way. (laughs) Well, those people are not producers. They are bullshit artists. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality is, is uh, I think what makes circling is it takes a village and that's why there are so many different producers and so many different types of producers that, you know, in theory, if you provide a meaningful piece to the puzzle in making a movie, you should get a producer credit, some kind of a producer credit. Uh, Unfortunately, right now you go to any studio feature film and easily a dozen producer titles, if sure. not more. Yeah, I've seen more than that as a matter of course, not as a matter of, uh, of difference. Um, and, you know, it's kind of gotten out of hand, but it's a way for people to get their name in a movie uh, when they didn't really provide a service. Yeah. Um, a, a producer is someone who greases the wheels, someone who helps an idea become a reality. Yes. It may be taking a script and finding the right studio for it or the right director. You know, it may be attaching a cast member. You know, I have a relationship with so-and-so who is a movie star and I can attach him to this. That's a service that's been provided that helps a movie get its budget, get its uh, green light and its distribution. So anyone who provides a valid assistance in getting a movie from page to screen or an idea even, you know, it can be even more nebulous than a script. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think then, and I think the way you can, what you can take away from that Anitra is uh, in order to try to replicate it yourself is this, obviously there's, there's many ways to do it, but it's, you know, aligning yourself with an idea or piece of material that is great that people want to make. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Uh, you know, obviously having access to a piece of talent that people want to be in business with that can help get the movie made. That's another way to do it. But the, the, the fastest way to do it is provide the money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one way. That's, that is the, the simplest and fastest way to becoming a producer. Uh, it's a big way, but probably the most practical way is to find or create material that mm-hmm. is commercial enough that people want to throw money into it. Yep. Align yourself with, with, if you're not writing, align yourself with great writers, uh, you know, scour books. Um, that's, that's how, that's how, you know, my old boss used to, uh, back in the day when they used to, to pay for development all the time in the, in the, <laughs> the grand old days of the eighties and nineties, which, you know, yeah. I'm sure Mick remembers well too. Yeah. Uh, my old boss used to go to the bookstore, write down a jacket liner for a book he thought was interesting turn around, pitch to the studios, get them to buy it for them. And then off he was being a producer to try to develop that movie. Um, yeah, it, it's great if you can bring something to the party. And whether it's an idea or a script or a writer or a director or a producer uh, or, or an actor, um, you need to be able to provide a reason to exist, a reason for the people to make the movie that would not have been made without your assistance. Yes, I completely agree. All right. Our next question is going to uh, be a little bit reflective. Oh, dear. Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Gary wants to know, Mick and Joe, if given the opportunity to start your film career over, would you do anything different? Well, just the practicalities of the film industry today, I, I would do everything different, not by choice, but the industry is completely different now. They're are streaming channels. There are more networks than ever before. There, uh, there are um, movies that are made for so many different platforms. So movies and television are, are blending together more. The way you get into it is much, much more difficult. There's a lot more people looking for work in the field. You know, I, I would still start the way I started by writing spec screenplays and hoping to be able to get them to an agent or to uh, a production company or a producer or somebody who would become passionate about it. And, you know, that's how I started was by writing. And the it's still the most, maybe not the most, but one of the most valid ways to get a kickstart in a career is to write something that everybody wants to make, right. or at least somebody who means something is passionate enough to make or to get them excited about your writing and think you're the right guy to maybe write this project that we're looking for a writer on. Um, But writing a script that shows you can do something well uh, and that will stand out in a pile of 30 scripts an agent takes home on the weekend is to me the the most effective way it was the way that worked for me to get into the industry and it seems that today you still can get in in that way um as a young filmmaker now people have the tools to make movies without spending a fortune because of digital technology because of iphones shooting in 4k 
because you can edit on your laptop. Mm -hmm. All of these tools, those none of those tools were there when I started, but writing a script is free. All it takes is time and a good idea and the ability to put words on a page that make people wanna keep turning it. But a filmmaker now has the advantage of being able to make a movie homemade that looks professional. Yeah. The bad news is that the competition Everyone is huge. Can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the thing, and and we've said this on the show before. The good news about uh, is that everybody can make a movie, and the bad news is that everybody can make a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I completely agree. And I mean, I, we already talked about this earlier, but that that young filmmaker who made that short film that I just set up. I mean, that's a perfect example. Uh, yeah. And you you saw it. I, it's 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 very well done. Uh, very and, well done. Yeah. And you know, I think that's that's the level of you know what where it has to be to be able to get attention. But you can put it out on the internet, and people can find it, and things can happen because of that. I, I think that that still is, you know, making something great still is the most viable way to getting attention. Um, and the fact is, you're not competing with other people who are making homemade short films. You're competing with professionals because yes. now that you can make movies with a gloss in your bedroom, uh, it can be competitive with whatever is playing in the theaters or playing on Netflix or whatever. Yep. Now yep. you can give it the gloss and the sheen. All it needs is the imagination and the, the talent of the cast and crew putting it together. Yeah. My my advice would be a little less creative and a little more practical, which would be, you know, if I could go back to my college self, um, it would have been to get out to L.A. a little bit faster. Um, and it would have been to try to get into a talent agency mailroom. Um, that's a that's always been a good idea, one that uh, I never imagined. But yeah, uh, my my um, my school never really pitched that because they were they were too busy trying to push us to be the next big filmmakers so they could have a a flagship name to hang their hat on you know uh but but uh practically and it's 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 a great way to it's basically you know grad school you know you learn everybody's names you learn how deals are made you're reading screenplays um you know and you're interacting with talent you're interacting with writers and directors and actors uh through your boss's you know clients right yeah being and, that or being an assistant you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's but that's that's the path, right? You start in the right. mailroom and then you become an agent's assistant, and then you meet all their their people. And a lot of my friends who did that, who did want to transition to creative things, uh, they were able to become, you know, so and so big showrunners assistant, and then suddenly they became TV writers after that. Or you yeah. know what I mean? Well, and for me, I was answering phones for Star Wars in 1977. Yep. And, uh, yeah. So it's that just, and that's how you met, that's also school. how you met you met Landis through that job. Yeah. You know? Uh and, and then, I did my Z Channel job because of that, where doing the interviews on Z Channel where I met Spielberg and Carpenter and Toby and all these people. Yep. Yep. No, I think I think yeah, obviously networking is is the crucial piece of that. And uh I'm not and, sure and about it, networking. Networking seems to me well, something entirely well, build, different. Building, but but you're building relationships or whatever you want to call yeah. it, networking or just becoming friends with people, which which would be the best case scenario, right? Networking right. does have a, a somewhat dirty connotation to it. But, uh, you know, one one bit of advice, one bit of practical advice I got before I came out here, which I thought was really good, was uh, if you try to meet two new people a week, you've met 104 new people in a year. 
right? <laughs> uh, and and then over the years, that starts to become significant, right? And make them wear name tags. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But uh, but no, it was it, honestly, I, it was something that I really tried to practically put in my back pocket, uh, and I think it served me well over the years. So, um, you know, but yeah, yeah, but but I would not have. Uh, I think you just you develop a fraternity of peers when you work at an agency that end up going to all sorts of different parts of the industry. And that is one thing that I do feel I missed out on. Uh, yeah. If, well, if, I, I never went through that direction. You went through the development uh, process yeah, yeah. Uh, and doing that sort of thing. I was always just kind of pushing against the headwinds on my yeah. own. I, I mean, I, but even when I was in development, when I was an assistant and, and, and a creative exec, I always felt I was one step behind all the people who went through the agency programs. Yeah, very, very possibly true. Or, you know, it's that route or you're lucky enough to create something fantastic that opens doors for you. Yeah. Yeah. Just do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's what happens. You know, you I, know, write no, a I know, I know, I know. You write a script. I was lucky enough to be hired by Spielberg on Amazing Stories on the basis of a spec script. Well, that actually is a great transition into our next question. Hot dog. From Travolta Russell Jedi Trekkie 1996. Who wants and you expect to... me to take this serious. <laughs> <laughs> who wants to know what is your favorite memory of Steven Spielberg, which is appropriate because his new movie, The Fablemans, which is about our memories of Steven Spielberg, just came out. What is your favorite memory of Steven Spielberg, Vic? You know, I have many. But I'll tell you, two of them that were really, really, really remarkable. One was when he asked me to direct an episode of Amazing Stories uh, season two, because I was story editor the first year and only writer on that. He gave me the opportunity to direct an episode, but he wanted me to show him that I knew what I was doing by having uh, bringing in an illustrator and storyboarding the whole show, which I did. We sat down for two hours together where we went over the storyboards one wow. by one. And it was so great because mainly what he said was, oh, good. Oh, I like this. Oh, I like that. And then he tossed in one idea that was really oddball. But of course, I used it because he was my Jedi master. Uh-huh. Um, so those two hours were film school distilled into two hours of, of sitting with the world's primary creative genius filmmaker. And then part of the same process, but afterwards was when I shot my episode, everything was fixed and we went into the ambulance screening room. It was me and Cynthia and my agent, Rick Jaffa at the time and Stephen and Kathy Kennedy. And sitting there, nervous as you can imagine, uh, as the show plays, and at the end of it, to have Steven Spielberg go on and on about how much he liked it, wow. the things he liked about it, how I had a real career in the business and all that. I, literally, I was fighting tears the whole time. It, those two memories will always be enormous for me. You know, the, it was just such being given the keys to the kingdom it felt like at the time yeah by yeah. by the top of the pops you know yeah, and, yeah. You know, i'm choked up now just thinking about it but it was just such a an amazing experience 
you know, a lot of people start earlier than I did. I was 33 years old when he gave me that opportunity. And um, it was something that still means a lot to me. Well, let's talk about the opposite end of that spectrum. Okay. <laughs> Lee wants to know, what was your toughest project in terms of studio interference? <laughs> he'd also well, like to, well, hang on. He'd also like to shout out his wife, Rosala, who is expecting their baby girl in February and who won't let Lee name their child Frankenstein. Time to get a divorce. <laughs> Congratulations to Lee and Rosala. Yes. That's fantastic. Um, well, it's easily um, sleepwalkers. Mm. You know, there was a lot of uh, struggling with that. Um, but for a while, nobody was noticing because we were a so low priority project. Uh, on the lot, there were three movies shooting. Right. And we've talked about this before as well. Francis Coppola was shooting Bram Stoker's Dracula and Steven Spielberg was shooting Hook and I was shooting Sleepwalkers. Amazing. So it was Francis, Steven, and Mick. Wow. <laughs> What's wrong wow. with this picture? <laughs> and, and Steven came over to watch me work. And uh, that was amazing. I went to the Hook set, which was fantastic. Unbelievable. But um, because you're making a movie about a mother and son character having sex uh, and <laughs> the sex and violence and all of that, um, they were very intrusive. Uh, I had a, a terrific DP named Rodney Charters who had done Psycho 4 for me. He had done all the Friday the 13th TV episodes. Mm. Very talented guy. But the studio wasn't liking what they saw. And halfway through, they said, we want you to fire your DP. We're going to fire your DP. Oh, and I, wow. thought, I thought, if you fire my DP, you're going to think you can just steamroller me with everything. So yeah, yeah. I had to fight that. You know, there were issues that they had, and some of them were valid, some not. Uh, but Rodney's a terrifically talented guy, still working, uh, a New Zealander by way of Canada, um, and did a great job on Psycho 4. And, you know, we were both over our heads at a, uh, at a studio. We'd never done studio movies before together uh, or separately. So, I had to fight them on that, on that uh, decision. And I won the fight and had a conversation with Rodney and everything went okay. But we had a real brawling, screaming, old school New York producer, line producer Ooh. named Richard Stenta, who was constantly bitching and saying, ah, I'm going to pull the plug at 12 hours. You know, you got to stop. And just really bellicose and all. Um, and then at the end of production, he said to me, now, Mick, you should be able to get the orchestra that you want, anything you want, because we came in $300,000 under budget. $300,000 would have been another week of shooting. It was maybe not a week, but, wow. it, you know, I had to do so many shortcuts because he was yelling at me that we were over budget. And then here's a $300,000 excess that was left over that could have been put into the movie. Wow. wow. Which I assume somebody got a, uh, a bonus. A bonus. Yeah. Savings. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then go, we had to go back to the MPAA five times to get an R rating. Ooh. So that was, <laughs> that was a struggle. 
Um, I feel like I feel like that that MPAA fight is probably why we haven't gotten the third installment of the motherfucker trilogy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Psycho Force, Sleepwalkers, and who knows what? Yeah. <laughs> TBD. Uh, <laughs> TBD. Um, all right. Well, a, a happier production experience. Uh, you're you're and our friend Jeff Gelbrights. Uh, I've been watching Cabinet of Curiosities, and it's obvious the show has a huge budget per episode. But I was wondering, what was the average budget per episode for Masters of Horror? Um, this was in 2005. Well, no. Yeah. 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 yeah 2005 through 2007. And our pattern budget was just about exactly $2 million. And at that time, most network TV shows, which had the same sets and cast all the way through, were averaging about three to three and a half million. So we were creating new sets and new locations and new casts for everyone. And we really knew how to stretch that budget yeah. and, and get feature quality filmmaking from feature filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I I look at the uh, Cabinet of Curiosities <laughs> and I drool with envy. You know? Yes, 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 yes. Just sumptuous production values that, you know, obviously are way more expensive than we had on Masters. But I'm still very proud with what our scrappy crew put together back in the in the day. I uh, and just just to give some people some compar- comparison. Uh, all of Nightmare Cinema was made for less than one of those episodes of Masters of Horror. Yes, yeah, under two million dollars. <laughs> and now, you know, it's not uncommon. I don't know how much Game of Thrones costs, but it's not uncommon for the streamers to have throw in ten million dollars an episode. Well, on, yeah, on some of their shows. Let's not forget Lord of the Rings. The new Lord of the Rings is the first billion dollar show. So. Hi, yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. I haven't heard anybody talk about that show though, frankly. Um, it's 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 got its fan base. Well, um, I know it's the biggest uh rated show on Amazon. On, on Amazon, on Amazon, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Uh, so you know, but uh, we're not here to critique, that is not the job of postmortem, it's to ask Mick anything. So <laughs> that's right. Well, Andy I'm not Land wants to, Andy Land wants to know, are you excited? about the speaking of Amazon and big shows, are you excited about the possibility of Mike Flanagan's dark tower series? I am. Uh, I was able to see him a week ago and congratulate him on his new deal, but it's not a done deal that that show is going to end up on Amazon. That's true. That's right. I, I misspoke. Yeah. It, 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 no, but it probably will because he has a very big deal that he just made there after leaving Netflix. And uh, uh, Jeff, Mr. Jeff Bezos is a big fan of the Dark Tower books. So, uh, yeah, I think dot, that. Dot, uh, dot. <laughs> I think look, I'm excited about anything Mike Flanagan does. I think. He is, you know, like Stephen King said about Clive Barker in the beginning, I've seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. You know, the future is already here and the present of horror is Mike Flanagan. I think he's one of the greatest practitioners of the art of making grown-up horror movies and television that are unbelievably layered and sophisticated and, and beautifully made. 
Yeah, no, I mean, we're obviously, Mike is our, I believe, our most frequented postmortem guest. Four times. Uh, four times, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and hopefully he'll be back for it to be our first five-timer. Maybe he gets a jacket like they did with SNL. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do that. Uh, Ours will but, be a t-shirt. It's Yeah, dread. there you go. He'll get the first <laughs> postmortem t-shirt. Uh, but um, I look, I mean, I have no, there's no doubt in my mind that if anyone can deliver on the Black Tower creatively, it's Mike. Uh, you know, the, the producer brain in my head goes, oh my God, what buyer is going to commit to five seasons and two movies, you know? Um, but, but I, that I cannot wait to see Mike pull off that magic trick. Um, yeah. Yeah. If anybody can, it's Mike. I agree. TDE Pero wants to know, do you think we'll see any new trends in horror following the success of Smile and Barbarian? Well, the good news is that they were both originals. Um, that they weren't based on existing properties, intellectual properties or IP. Um, and there, a bunch of the movies that we've talked about today are of the same ilk. So what I think is, is good news, I would never predict a trend, you know, it's, but what it is, is that it's diverse, you know, not just gender and ethnicity and the like, but the diversity of ideas is profound right now in the movies that have been made and released theatrically. Um, it's not all zombie movies. It's not all vampire movies. It's not all witchcraft movies. It's not right. all satanic panic movies, but these are individual ideas that have grown on their own without being watered by the movies that came before them. Yes. So I, I think that's what's exciting. And if that's a trend that continues, that was set up here in 2022. I'm, I'm really excited to see what the future holds. Well, I will say I've been on a, a little bit of a Zoom water bottle tour over the last few weeks with uh, the different studios and the like. And <laughs> uh, I, I can at least speak to this smile trend uh, a little bit more. There, there's definitely been a uh, uh, studio execs have noticed that's a, you know, $17 million movie made over $200 million. Uh, right. There's, there's no, no doubt about that. And uh, you know, the thing that I think they are looking for now with original horror more than ever is that hooky thing that they can hang the marketing campaign around. Uh, I think they, they, they credit success with smile to the gimmick of the smile being the thing that you could point to and say, that's the smile movie. They credit barbarian right. to being that's the, you know, mystery box in a basement movie, uh, the black phone, obviously the black phone. So, right. so the, the, what they've extrapolated from the movies that were successful this year uh, is they all had a thing that you could point to even nope had the, you know, spoiler UFO. Right. right. Um, so. Yeah. It's uh, a high concept visual. uh Yes. Visual so, so while, so while they might be more open to original horror ideas than they have been in the past, uh, they're definitely looking for what is that thing that they can build the whole movie around. They're not necessarily looking for character driven or, or performance or lead actor driven stuff. It's a marketing hook. Yeah. Yes. That's mm -hmm. easily that, put on a poster or a trailer or a TV. Yes. Story. Yes. And so until, you know, we get, another hereditary that'll probably be the thing right yeah. uh, <laughs> because that's how that's how this kind of the pendulum swings back and forth it's it's uh um and so right now it's definitely in the uh 
the the trend of what is the the big conceptual hook uh, to your original idea. So, well, the good thing is that the horror genre is a venerable one, and it keeps going up and down. It always comes back, and like the living dead <laughs> contained within them. Uh, Let's, well, that, well that, that's a great segue into our final question, which I think speaks to uh, two companies merging together into one giant monster. Demir uh, <laughs> writes, what do you think about Jason Blum and James Wan potentially joining forces? And what does this mean for the future of horror? Well, they've done it in the past. So true, uh, but this is this is like they're bringing no, this is a big machine. It's, yes. Yeah, it's just like James Gunn and DC. Uh, right, which is something that happened while we've been off AMAs and is pretty remarkable. Uh, it's a big, a, big deal. Yeah, yeah that a, tro a former uh, trauma director is now <laughs> running the most coveted IP in the Warner Brothers Discovery, Discovery Library. Yeah, uh, definitely. Pretty, pretty amazing. I'm very happy for James Gunn. I can't wait to see what he does with that. But uh, but, but more specifically to our, our little nook of the world, uh, Blumhouse and Atomic Monster uh, are, are potentially going to become one. Uh, well, I think it's great that James is there. He's a great creative force. You know, Blum is a great businessman, a guy who knows how to package and release movies and put them out there. So uh, any, any force that comes together, you know, I will be excited if they keep doing original projects like James has Megan coming out as we're recording this. Um, and, you know, but the Blumhouse brand has had a lot to do with uh, reviving IP and doing uh, franchises. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've really been relying a lot on them and more power to them because they've had great success and, any successful horror movie is going to lead to more horror movies. So I'm happy about that. I hope that they keep up the number of, of original ideas and movies. And I can see Megan being a hit and there being a Megan two and three. And oh four, yeah. And yeah. I I'm, I'm, I've got my ticket for Megan versus Chucky. Uh, just, <laughs> yeah, just, tell me, just tell me when and where. Uh, yeah. But you know, uh, James has a long history of doll horror. Yes, so, that's true. That's true. Here we go uh, again. But I, but it looks great. I've only seen the trailer at this point. It's it looks not very a, fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I I think. Um, I mean, you know, I think from from outside of the Blumhouse perspective to to us, you know, scrappier independent types. Uh, you know, it's it's it is a little concerning that you know Universal is going to have a monopoly basically over two of the biggest horror outputs uh in town um it makes me think that they're not going to be picking up much horror from just about anybody else um because they don't need to <laughs> yeah it's probably so, true and i don't know is is atomic monster atomic robot and and um atomic monster atomic monster blumhouse. Yeah. yeah and blumhouse are they just doing is it just a horror company it's it's uh well it's going to have an exclusive deal with Universal I believe or if, if it's not exclusive it's at least a first look. But I mean um, Blumhouse and James have both got a history of non horror material. That's true. Um, it, it's it's well. possible. I mean it's still such early days and there was only really that first kind of initial 
them floating it out there through the New York Times that they're doing this. Uh, so I think there's still a lot to, to learn. But, um, you know, I do I do wonder what the appetite from Universal is going to be for horror from their other producer deals that they have, yeah. you know, um, like like Platinum Dunes, which is obviously a a big horror generator in and of itself has a, a deal with Universal. What does that look like in the long term when Blum and Juan will be pumping titles through uh, their deal? You know, it'll be interesting. Yeah, well, anything that gives a wider audience to the horror genre is helpful to us, even yeah. if it might kick to the to the side some of the more independent stuff. But hopefully success creates an appetite for more. Yes. And uh, I ever, ever the uh, optimist in this regard, I'm hopeful. I, I hope so too. Uh, I think I'm, I think it'll be great for, for James and Jason in the long run. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what, what comes of it, you know, and it'll be great for us, the viewer, we hope. Uh, we, we hope indeed. So on that note, Mick, uh, let's put a pin in 2022 and, uh, we'll look towards 2023 with, with great optimism. Yes, uh, indeed. And I hope everybody out there has the best holiday season and new year. And we'll be back in the new year, uh, to share our joy with one another for our dark genre. That's right. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays, Mick. We'll see you in 2023. Thanks, Joe. Thanks to all. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.